You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 28. This morning, we're beginning our reading in verse 11. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 937. We're reading from chapter 28 of the book of Acts and verses 11 through 16. Hear the word of God. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuloi. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Well, last time we learned how Governor Publius and the natives on Malta cared for Paul and his company. God designed the shipwreck so that the gospel would be preached on the island of Malta. Many healing miracles were performed, which confirmed the truth of that message of the gospel. And after three months, those who were marooned on the island were ready to set sail for Rome. And that's where Paul arrived after this long and arduous journey through the Mediterranean. And this is arguably the climax of the book of Acts, the fulfillment of prophecy. You may remember in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus himself said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. With Paul's arrival in Rome, that declaration has at last been fulfilled. As far as they were concerned, Rome is the end of the earth. And ever since his third missionary journey, Paul's focus has been on the capital of the empire. He spent more than two years in Ephesus making many disciples, and it says there in chapter 19... After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And now at last, our Lord's prediction and Paul's desire have both been fulfilled. Even Luke himself seems to express relief when he says in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. It was by a route and a method that the apostle probably had not envisioned. 
But trusting in God's wise and holy providence, Paul was content. They had traveled roughly 350 miles by sea and 100 miles by land, a total of 450 miles. And by the standards of that day, such a journey was a long and arduous ordeal. And the Lord was faithful. He was true to his word. Paul would testify before Caesar. And the trials themselves, as you and I both know, were means of strengthening and preparation. The angry mobs. The legal proceedings. The chains, the shipwreck, the viper bite, the long delay on the island. All of this, God worked together marvelously for his glory and their good. And if verse 14 is the climax, we came to Rome, then I think verse 15 is the high point of the climax. Verse 15, the apostle was met by the Roman disciples whose visit is greatly encouraging to him. And Luke retraces their steps and relates how they were able to accomplish this. It had been three years, mind you, since Paul had written Romans preparing for his visit, the book of Romans. And now that his prayer is granted, he's about to see these people face to face. And he perhaps wondered at times, what kind of reception would he receive? He'd never met them. And yet any misgivings that he had were now removed by their warm reception of him. These disciples in Rome had heard of his impending arrival and they were anxious to greet him. And I think it's worthy of note this morning that these Christians took great risk in visiting Paul. One group, we're told, traveled 30 miles south of Rome to the three taverns. Another group went 43 miles to see him at the Forum of Appius. And so these were not casual strolls on the outskirts of town. These were journeys in themselves. And what's more, these Christians ran the risk of being either robbed by vandals or arrested by an anti-Christian government. But they realized the significance of Paul's visit and they wanted to greet him. And of course, the importance of all of this was not lost on Paul, who was greatly cheered. Verse 15, as I said, the climax of the climax. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. His long-cherished and his much-delayed hope of reaching Rome was finally realized, and here were these Christians willing to take great risks in just welcoming him. Because you see, Paul had never met them. They were strangers. And now he had confirmation that the gospel had reached the uttermost parts of the earth. The apostles' letter to the Romans had not only been received, It had been embraced. And the message of salvation in Jesus Christ had preceded him to the city of Rome of all places. And these believers were a tremendous encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And I do think it illustrates one of the most important truths that we confess together, at least once a month. We believe in the communion of saints. It's one of the most important ways that our Lord strengthens and supports his people, the communion of saints, the fellowship of believers. 
No Christian, therefore, should ever feel any kind of shame for yearning for Christian fellowship. It's not an immature thing. It's not a weak or fleshly thing. It's a vital spiritual thing. Even the great apostle Paul needed and welcomed that kind of encouragement. The communion of saints is vital to our joy and our strength and the perseverance of the saints. And I want us, in light of that, to consider three points dealing with that truth. The first of which is this. The Christian's need for encouragement. I think it seems to me the fact that Paul took courage implies that he was in need of it. I think that's a logical conclusion. And Paul was no coward. I think perhaps he was the bravest Christian who ever lived. We can debate that. That's my opinion. But he was human. He was a social being. He was in need of Christian fellowship because there were times, rest assured, when he became discouraged, downcast, disheartened. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. His journey to Rome had been long and arduous, full of various trials and hardships. And let's not forget that he had been ministering to others all along the way. He'd been spending and being spent for the gospel, especially on Malta. And God knew that his apostle needed encouragement. And these brothers, just the ticket. Also, the great Charles Spurgeon, someone a little closer to us in time. The great Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, routinely suffered under what he called his fainting fits. What he meant by that was bouts of depression. These were bouts with depression that often followed his Sunday preaching. Almost every Sunday afternoon, the great Charles Spurgeon. He would be plunged into depression. From the mountaintop of worship, he would descend into the valley of discouragement. In a sermon by Spurgeon himself, he says this, I quote, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. He knew by experience the reality of all types of mental anguish that they are not easily resolved. And oftentimes his bouts of depression came without cause. It wasn't always logical. The reason was not clear to him. He goes on, and I quote, God's people sometimes walk in darkness and see no light. There are times when the best and the brightest of saints have no joy. And so he developed various strategies for coping. Warm vacation in a nice spot. A simple walk in God's creation. He even said, and I quote again, I have felt grateful to God when I have found intense pain relieved, a weary brain soothed, and calm, refreshing sleep obtained by a cigar. But more importantly, 
He reminded himself in those times that his depression was ordained by God. Often after preaching, he asked his wife if she would just read to him scripture, particularly the Psalms. And he concluded, God never says, well, he's no longer any use to me. He can do nothing for me. I'm going to leave Spurgeon alone. No, that's not how God works with his children. He's an ever-present help to those in need. Isaiah 40, verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Not just comfort, but strength. Not just a rebuke, but encouragement. And most important, Spurgeon thought deeply about the exaltation of Christ. His Savior and ours reigns supreme. He says that he has the keys of death and Hades, and he calls us to share in his glory. For whatever reason, that encouraged him, and I think it ought to encourage us. Because the point is, even God's best need encouragement, and Paul was no different. He was set apart by the Father. He was appointed by Christ. He was filled by the Spirit, but he was still a man. And he was about to stand trial before Caesar on serious charges that could result in his death. And the Lord knew he needed encouragement. And it came through these brethren. And like the Apostle Paul, you and I oftentimes need encouragement. Because we go through tough times and gloomy periods, great trials and temptations. I've talked to many of you, and some of you have serious temptations and trials in life. And one thing we must always remember is that they never come by chance. They never come by chance. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, including all earthly trials. I don't know why he brings them most times, but we know that he brings them for good purpose. And yet one of the side effects is discouragement. And sometimes it's so difficult to get rid of, isn't it? The psalmist in Psalm 42, this morning, Elder Miller read it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Didn't even know why he was depressed. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David was dejected, he was despondent, deeply troubled, and cast down. And I think the same can be said of God's children who are often distressed. Not all of us experience it at the same time or in the same way or in the same measure. For some, depression is a steady diet. For others, it is an occasional meal. But Christians get discouraged. It's a common experience among God's people. And he uses it, we know, to build character and strengthen faith and promote maturity. But it's neither pleasant nor is it easy. It's often very debilitating, difficult. Jesus himself, the sinless Savior, needed the ministry of angels in the wilderness. If our Lord himself needed encouragement, boy, surely his followers do too. 
We're vulnerable, aren't we, to the vicissitudes of life, constant changes and trials, and this is one reason why the Bible exhorts us to be constant in prayer and reliance upon Christ. There's a fictional story, and it is fictional. Let me preface it. This is total fiction. But it's told of the devil selling some of his tools and putting them out for public inspection, each being marked with its sale price. He had laid out such things as hatred and envy, jealousy, deceit, lust, pride, and so on. And set apart from all the rest, all by itself, was this relatively harmless-looking implement, quite worn, but priced extremely high. What's the name of this tool, said one customer. Ah, that's discouragement, replied Satan. Why is it priced so high? Because, said the devil, it is more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's heart with that one even when I can't get near him with any of the others. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it is one of my best devices. Discouragement. The need of the Christian for encouragement. Secondly, the Christian source of encouragement. You'll notice that before taking courage, the apostle thanked God, verse 15. He realized that the true source of spiritual encouragement is the Lord. That's the source. And it's found, I believe, in our union with Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you realize that as a Christian, you are joined to Christ spiritually and mystically, yet truly and really. We're taught in our confession that in our effectual calling, His Spirit gives us faith, and by that faith, we're united to Christ. It's a mysterious thing. It's incomprehensible to me, and I suspect to you too, but it's true. The elder read this morning from 1 Corinthians 6, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What that means is that this is the nearest, closest, most intimate and blessed union of all. We're joined to Christ. We share in his suffering and his death. We share in his resurrection and his glory. And so there is this strange oneness between Christ and his church. As a husband and wife, as the head and the body, as the root and the branches are not two, but one. So Jesus and the believing sinner are not reckoned as two, but one. Do you not see then what a high an honorable relationship faith brings you into? Union with Christ. John Flavel says the day of conversion is the day that the, of that soul's espousals to Christ. <laughs> Beautiful way to say it. And he goes on to suggest that Jesus the King, he woos the sinful creature. And then he greatly rejoices when he wins the sinner's consent. 
enabled by the Holy Spirit, of course. And at that moment, he espouses us forever to himself as his beloved bride, one flesh. It's the greatest honor you can ever experience. The greatest honor ever done to the human nature was the hypostatic union, God and man in one person. The greatest honor ever done to ourselves is the mystical union joined to Christ as our head and husband. All of us, every true Christian is joined to Christ. We are members of his body. It's the foundation upon which our justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification are all based. And it's also one of the pillars of our assurance. Isn't that wonderful? Only if Jesus himself can be dethroned and cast into hell can you lose your salvation. Well, that's not going to happen. It's good news. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that's the greatest reassurance that any Christian can have. And because of this union with, between Christ and the believer, we never hate one another. No one ever hated his own flesh. And so Christ will never hate his bride. You're part of his bride. There's a strange, wonderful sympathy between Jesus and the Christian. To be sure, he says that whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. We belong to each other. He's our God. We're his people. He's our redeemer. We're his bride. But the fact remains that only the Holy Spirit can apply this truth in such a way as to lift a downcast spirit out of the pit. He's the source of holiness and grace and growth as well as encouragement. We are regenerated by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We're enlightened and taught by the Spirit. He applies God's truth to the mind. He pours God's love into the heart and he infuses grace into the soul. And the clear implication is that he's the ultimate source of true spiritual encouragement. And it's so important to know that. Because we don't want to ascribe the praise of such encouragement to the wrong source. We don't want to rob him of his glory in idolizing human instruments. You know the culture in which we live. The celebrity-crazed culture is obsessed with the cult of personality. Those who move us or motivate us or inspire us or make us grow, we idolize. But true, lasting encouragement comes only by means of the Spirit's power, whoever he uses. And our prayers ought to reflect that. And Paul knew this, which is why before he took courage, he thanked God. He recognized the hand of God at work in the arrival of those brethren. This was a divinely ordained ministry. And the Lord was giving him courage and strength through these fellow believers. That's number two. But there's number three. The Christian's means of encouragement, not just his need, not just the source, but the means of encouragement. Because obviously in Paul's case, it was received by means of believing brethren. The Spirit is the source, but he uses various means. First, he uses his word. When Paul spoke of the Lord's return, 1 Thessalonians 4, our life in heaven, this is what he said. Therefore, encourage one another 
with these words. He's coming back. He's going to take us home. We're going to be in heaven forever. Encourage one another with these words. But then secondly, the Spirit uses the fellowship of the saints to encourage us, as we've been saying. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the final day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. The Spirit uses public worship and shared encouragement to prepare us for the final judgment. And such mutual fellowship with one another is what the Spirit uses to give courage. It's an important means of preserving believers and preventing apostasy. And it's by virtue of our union with Christ that we commune with one another. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. We commune. We fellowship. And so it's God's will that we assemble together and encourage each other by the gospel. Once a week, we gather corporately in his presence for public worship. And here we hope to find nourishment for the soul and encouragement for the whole man. And that's why to forsake the public assembly is a mistake of great magnitude. The mind is not informed and the soul is not fed and the heart is not strengthened among the saints. And yet when you and I suffer, when we're depressed, isn't the great temptation to withdraw and isolate? I feel it. You do too. The natural tendency when you're depressed is to ignore externals, look within, and focus on yourself. But there is no solid foundation for comfort to be found in your own heart. There's nothing within ourselves by which to climb out of spiritual depression. Proverbs 18.1, listen to this. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The patriarch Job, I think, teaches us a better way. On that day when he lost his flocks and his herds, his servants and all ten of his children, it says this. Then Job arose and tore his robe. He shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he wasn't alone. At least his wife and the messengers, probably the other household servants were with him. And I'm not saying here that public worship can instantly solve depression. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that oftentimes it is very unwise and unhelpful to absent ourselves if we are depressed. At all times, it's wise to set our minds on things above where Christ is, like Asaph, who had this fierce struggle with depression when he perceived the incongruity in the society around him. Do you remember what he said? As for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Why, Asaph? Why are you depressed? 
Well, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Seems like God's promise is not true. But, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. It was a problem that he solved not by reason alone, not by isolating himself and looking within, but in public worship. He heard a sermon, he pondered the truth, he considered hell, and it helped. Their end. Elsewhere, he lamented the severity of discipline inflicted upon Israel, and he wondered out loud, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. In the sanctuary with God's people, he thinks back and reflects upon God's work. And that helps. Looking outside himself. We meditate upon the cross of Christ and the resurrection from the dead, that our salvation is secure. We rehearse these things, dwell upon them, talk about them, and such recollection is a powerful antidote, I believe, against depression. It's not the only thing, but it's the most powerful thing. We consider and we celebrate together these things in public worship because we live in a world that is fast becoming increasingly more impersonal, aren't we? Social media might tempt you to think that you're more connected than ever. But the opposite is true. No computer, no internet, no machine can replace fellowship. We believe in the communion of saints because it's been appointed by God, and Christian fellowship is one of the great means of spiritual encouragement. From the pulpit, you hear of Christ's redemption. In the pew, you're encouraged by like-minded pilgrims. A friendly smile, a welcoming grip, an encouraging word or a warm embrace. Wasn't COVID so difficult because of the lack of that? Proverbs 12 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. There's a story told of a lady named Old Mamie. <laughs> Old Mamie. And she would make frequent trips to the branch post office in her community. One day, she was there, and as she was confronted with a long line and was in need only of a few stamps, that's all she wanted. An helpful observer asked old Mamie, why don't you use the stamp machine? You can get all the stamps you need, and you won't have to wait in line. And of course, the observer assumed that old Mamie's priority was getting in and out of the post office as quick as she could. But in response, old Mamie said, you know, I know that's true, but the machine can't ask me about my arthritis. Today, 
We can do most daily transactions without speaking to anyone. You can do it all online. But you and I were made for human contact. Friendship, social interaction. Do you know that solitary confinement remains one of the most severest of punishments? If you're in solitary confinement, that's the worst. Paul says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. And so we see God's wisdom in ordaining a gathering on the Lord's day. And the greatest word of encouragement is to be found in the gospel. The Lord's promise not only heals the heart, but it blesses the soul. And sweet is the assurance of pardon to a soul groaning under the burden of sin. I'm going to close with a quote from hymn 152, which was written by John Newton. May thy gospel's joyful sound conquer sinners, comfort saints. May the fruits of grace abound, bring relief for all complaints. Thus may all our Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. How precious is the privilege of strengthening one another in these ways. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in using your word to encourage, to comfort, and to build up the saints. And we also thank you that he uses the communion of saints as a precious means of giving courage to your people. Help us to cherish it, to rely upon it, to promote it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.